This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Susan Hurley, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to introduce you because you are new to um, writing fiction um, and this is your first fiction, so um, I'm sure our listeners um, don't know you yet, but they are going to find out a whole lot about you right now. Susan has worked in medical research and the pharmaceutical industry for more than 30 years. Her research has been published in high-profile medical journals and her writing has appeared in Kill Your Darlings, The Australian and other literary journals and newspapers. She was shortlisted for the 2017 Peter Carey Short Story Award and Eight Lives. Her gripping first novel was shortlisted for the 2018 UK Caledonian Novel Award, which is, that's not, is that this book? No. It is this book. It is uh, book It book. was titled The Fate of a golden boy at that point, but it is this book. Yep. In Eight Lives, which is the book that we're talking about today, former refugee David Tran becomes the golden boy of Australian medical research and invents a drug that could transform immunology. Eight volunteers are recruited for the first human trial, a crucial step on the path to global fame for David and a, win- and a windfall gains for his, inve- for his investors. But when David dies in baffling circumstances, motives are put under the microscope. I mean, this area is so complex, medicine, pharmaceuticals, and how you bring that into a page-turning fiction novel is great work. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> so, Susan, how, I mean, it's stellar career, but not in writing. Well, it has been in writing. I've, I've written a lot all through my career, uh, theses, scientific papers, submissions to have drugs subsidised on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, but fairly dry stuff. So yeah. this is a departure from that sort of writing. Okay, so firstly tell me about your career because not very often do science and literature meet in this way. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, I think it, it happens from time to time. So for it's example, <laughs> yes, I think Michael Crichton was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there are other examples. Uh, but so I started my professional life as a pharmacist, Yeah, uh, became interested in research. I did a research study as a pharmacist that became a master's degree. So were you in, are you from Victoria? Where are you from? Yes, I'm from Melbourne. I've lived most of my life in Melbourne. I spent a couple of years in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did some research as a pharmacist, decided that research was my future and did a PhD in epidemiology and health economics, which 
translated to cost effectiveness analysis. So that's been my main area of research, looking at the costs and benefits of drugs and public health programs like mammographic screening, HIV, AIDS prevention programs, and tobacco control, for example, so smoking cessation programs. Right. Mm. Big areas, <laughs> big areas. I'm trying yes. to get my head around all of that. Um, uh, as we discussed before the podcast, I've got a, a, a kind of a real um, interest in science, um, particularly um, medicine and pharmaceuticals and the conflict between money, business and public health, mm. really. Um, that's a big area, isn't it? It is, and hopefully that comes out in the novel it's set in a um, medical research biotech environment where um, the egos are big. Uh, there's a lot at stake, both in terms of and reputation. the money is big. The money's big too, massive, and, and that's authentic. The money is big in these sort of circumstances. Yes. Um, so, uh, as the blurb says. Um, my novel has its origins in a real drug trial that ended very tragically um, and a lot came out about that, but I was interested in the human side behind that. Which is unusual for a scientist, mm-hmm. don't you think? Uh, I guess, yeah. 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 But I've always been a very keen reader and I like reading books that are about something. Yeah. Um, so, for example, we are comple- all completely beside ourselves. The Karen Joy Fowler book about chimpanzees, I thought that was fabulous. Yeah. Uh, books like Robert Harris's Thrillers. Um, yeah. You learn something as well as feeling something for the characters. Yeah. So that's what I was aiming for. Um, I want to talk a little bit about being um, a scientist and being in research mm-hmm. and pharmaceuticals yet again. Um, when I look at the model in the US, the, the public health model mm-hmm. in the US versus the model here, um, it seems to me that those health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies, which are, you know, uh, billionaires, but they're quiet. They're not like, they don't develop a profile like the tech companies, for instance, where, you know, like you've got the Steve Jobs of the world and, and they are quietly, quietly manipulating our health system. Does that happen here, do you think? Um, I, I don't think it's like it is in the United States because I think there's a lot going on there to do with health insurance and reimbursement of pharmaceuticals that when occasionally uh, it's revealed by a, an investigative journalist, it, it's sort of mind-blowing in terms of what's been happening. Yeah. Um, I think we're better regulated in that regard, did so, you did you hear um, recently about um, the uh, philanthropist of the Guggenheim? Was it called the the Sackville family or the? Uh, I I don't think it's. Sack- I think I know who you're talking yeah. about in in relation to uh, Purdue. Is that right? And and the um, the drug that um, OxyContin. Is OxyContin. That, yeah. And how they absolutely knew the effect that that was having on people but were pushing it out there in volumes and mm. that's how they acquired their wealth, yes. even, even though the drug really wasn't helping anyone. It, it was, was tragic to read about that and it's, my understanding is it's just a terrible problem uh, 
right across the United States. Yeah. Mm. And what, what, what makes it different here? Have we got better, better practices in place? Is it, how is it different here? Well, we've got a, um, government funded system. We've mm-hmm. got Medicare and we've got the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. Yeah. So that makes, the, that regulation, I think, makes things like that harder to happen here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that there's still a lot of, um, pressure in the pharmaceutical industry and biotech early stage biotech companies and that's the sort of um, pressure and uh, high stakes environment that's depicted in yeah. Aid Lives. Okay, so t- talk to me about that. Talk to me about the beginnings and origins of a drug and how that process happens. I mean, who's involved to start with? How does it get to a... Who, who does the development? Is it pharmaceuticals or is it researchers like yourself? It varies. Yeah. Um, so I've never been a basic scientist. I've yeah. always been further down the track but yeah. uh, what happens is a scientist either in a university or in a company will discover a drug that ha- seems to have potential uh, in terms of um, a particular therapeutic area and they will do in the first instance uh, bench top tests and then small animal studies to see if their ideas um, are borne out. So, for example, in the book I talk about a rat study that the main character has done looking at rheumatoid arthritis. And in in the trial that the the book had its origins in, that was a study that was done. Uh, So once the animal, small animal studies are done, if they look promising, then studies will be done on larger animals on primates, so typically monkeys, um, but sometimes they'll be done on dogs or other mammals. Um, And once the drug gets to a certain stage, then it will go into a phase one clinical trial, which is was the the trial that I read about that um, had the, the book has its origins in and which is one of the subjects of the book. So talk me through that. So a phase one trial is the first in human trial and that involves giving either healthy volunteers, they're usually men because uh, companies and scientists don't want to take the additional risk of giving it to women who might be pregnant uh, and they're typically healthy. In some uh, situations, for example, in cancer drugs, they they would typically be be, ca- be cancer patients. But uh, for the drug, in this instance, they're in the book. They're healthy patient, healthy people, yeah. patients. Uh, so they would be given what's hopefully a small dose, and the idea is to see if the drug is safe. Uh, the primary concern isn't to see if it's effective, but typically they will do, do some measurements to see uh, if there's any indication of effectiveness, not, not in terms of a clinical sign, but maybe some sort of parameter that they can measure from blood tests. Oh, so yeah. safety is the first issue. Safety is the first issue, yes. That's the whole goal of a phase one study. Right, okay. Yeah. So the trial that, um, eight lives 
was motivated by um, took place in London in 2006 and six healthy young men, they were average age 30, volunteered to have the drug tested on them and within they were, they were given the drug virtually simultaneously. Within an hour, an hour and a half, they were all terribly ill, so the drug wasn't safe at the dose they tested it at. Uh, they had... Um, they were writhing in pain. Uh, they started to swell up. Uh, one of the men's head became so swollen he was referred to as the elephant man. Uh, they had respiratory failure and ultimately kidney failure. They were all admitted to intensive care and put on life support. So it was a tragedy. How much... I mean, it's nearly brought me to tears, actually. Mm. Um, how much would those kids have been paid? They were to be paid £2,000, right. which was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and they were you know, regular people. So One, we're, we're assuming, sorry to interrupt, but mm. we're assuming that that hadn't had the same effect on dogs or apes or monkeys or whatever we tried it on. No, it hadn't. Uh, but what was... So the thing about first in human trials, phase one trials, that made it interesting as a starting point for a novel is that it's always a step into the unknown. So no matter how comprehensive and well done the animal studies, you can never predict with 100% certainty how a drug will work when it's tried on humans for the first time. So that's why it's a test. Um, it's a step and do those kids know that? Do they know they're in a phase one study? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they know that. Um, I think it's debatable how much they understood. There have been interviews with them since and, you know, they say they didn't really understand that they were cavalier about it. Uh, one of them was a young actor who'd been over in the United States and had run up some debt, so yep. he thought this was a good way to clear the debt. Mm. Another was a plumber. Um, one of them ended up, you know, they all survived, thankfully, uh, but uh, one of them lost fingers and toes due to gangrene. Mm. Um, so the whole thing was tragic, of course, um, but it was also because it was so, I mean, it's the most dramatic point in a drug's development. So Is that it the worst one? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We've had in terms of a reaction. 
or that we know of? No, it's not. So after that trial, uh, there was there were many investigations. So the UK government had a, an inquiry. Uh, scientists started independently investigating all sorts of aspects of it. And some scientists claimed that the effect, if not predictable, was foreseeable because other similar drugs uh, had caused the same effect. In fact, the company that had manufactured this drug warned about the effect in their own documentation. Mm. Um, So you just have to wonder what they're thinking and the book's sort of an imagining of that. You know, what in this sort of circumstance... Uh, what's going on in people's minds, what's motivating them. But in terms of... Largely uh, dollars, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, and, but it's also human error. So um, there has there have been changes in the way these trials are run. So now there is what's called phase zero trials where the volunteers are given micro doses I mean, I should just backtrack a moment to say the other thing that was universally recognised as reckless, if not reprehensible, on the part of the people running the trial was that they gave the drug to the six men virtually simultaneously. Yeah. So rather than just one becoming ill, all six did. So that's been changed. So now there's what they call a sentinel patient who's given... Uh, a sentinel subject, because they're not patients there well, uh, a sentinel subject who's given micro doses to start with. Um, so it's a much more cautious approach. There have been other changes, but notwithstanding those changes, in 2016 there was another disaster in a phase one trial in France where one, I'm pretty sure they were men, one man died and four others suffered irreversible brain damage so they don't happen very often but no. uh, when they do it is really is, uh, tragic yeah but is it avoidable or is it a process that we have to go through well it's it is a step into we we all want safe and effective drugs yeah somebody has to they have to be tested um so there's no gain without pain. So they have to be tested on somebody. The question is why it was interesting as a subject of a novel also was there's moral ambiguity. There so who, who should they be tested on? Typically they're tested on people who have less power, people who need the money. Well, that's um, right. Yes. Because why else would you do it? Yes, well, in the US... Would you been, do it? Um... Well, I guess I, ha- I haven't done it, so, <laughs> so that's the answer to your question. Yeah. Um, I haven't done it today. Oh, date. I would. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but in the US, it's there've been t- sc- recent scandals where drugs have been tested on the homeless and undocumented oh. I- immigrants. In the past, uh, drugs have been tested on prisoners, uh, people in mental institutions. That seems entirely a lot worse on another level. Yes. I mean, it's different coming in with open eyes and knowing that it's about the money, but... Well, there are ethics committees that yeah. oversee these things. Mm-hmm. So you know, mm. part of the ethics committee's responsibility is to 
ensure that people participate with informed cons- give informed consent to their participation. Mm. But even though I, 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 I'm sure that the men in this trial in London uh, didn't think this was a possibility. Yeah. And it was a remote possibility, but it happened. Yeah. And one of the reasons it happened was because the dose they gave was too high. It was essentially the maximum dose. It, has, it was found subsequently that it saturated the receptors, which means, you know, they, they had as much as the body could, could mm. take. Mm. Um. So <clears throat> in, with your career and, and with what you know, do you think that that our health system, like in terms of fighting disease, like when we look at cancer, right, or mm-hmm. HIV AIDS or, you know, and then we break the cancers down to breast cancer and pancreatic cancer or whatever it is, there is a certain amount of politics behind things as well, isn't there? Is there a political, like, is there a louder voice in some areas of health than there is in others, and how does that affect the the drugs that we use, or the drugs that become available? Or you know, I often wonder why it's taken so long to come up with a drug for cancer. And are we getting closer to finding something? Well, to, just to look at the first part of your question, the way pharmaceutical companies work is that they look at drugs that have uh, the most market opportunity. So they're looking at drugs that are going to make it worthwhile investing in the research and development because only 10 to 20% of drugs that go into these phase one trials ever make it to market. Really? Yes. So the rest of them either don't work or have side effects that make them unsuitable. Then usually not dramatic side effects like was seen in this trial, yeah. but still they're, they're just not acceptable to be marketed, wouldn't be accepted by the drug regulators. So companies are picking drugs that have potentially a big market. Um, governments have recognised that, that that might be a problem so that um, less common diseases aren't getting the attention uh, that they need and so there have been incentives and sort of strategies to get those sort of drugs tested and get them to market. Right. Um, So in terms of it being political, it's... It's, I wouldn't say it's political. I think it's sort of market-driven. Yep. But with um, now with a check and balance that looks after people who have a rare disease. Yeah. As far as as far as so the the limitation becomes the science yeah. rather than the money. Yeah. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what yeah. we all want to hear. Yes. And you know I think um, patient advocacy groups have played a role in that yeah. as well. Yeah. So what about the cure for cancer? Uh, um, you, <laughs> I'm, I'm out of my depth here, Cheryl. Uh, I'd, oh, that's I have a shame to, you don't have it. <laughs> I guess I'd have to say that um, I think cancer is such a diverse... It's complex, isn't it? It's such so a many. diverse disease that mm. uh, the idea there's going to be a cure for cancer 
um, isn't well founded. So you know the I think was it one of the American presidents had that idea there was going to be a cure for cancer. Well, there yeah. needs to be many many cures for cancer, mm-hmm. but these. Drugs, immunotherapy, yeah. so monoclonal antibodies, which is... Um, I've heard they're great success. They have been very successful. With certain types of cancers. Exactly, yeah. with um, certain types of cancers and certain types of patients. Uh, right. So patients who have the right... Um, whose cancer has the right profile profile to be treated by these drugs. They've been very successful, but it, without wanting to discourage anybody who's on them. It's sort of early days, so uh, we just have to see how long the effect lasts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so taking this great brain of yours, which I've got (laughs) to say I'm enjoying chatting with you so much, how then do you you get this seed of an idea and do you think I'm going to write it as a paper and investigate what I'm hearing or how is it that you decide you're going to write crime fiction novel. I mean, mm-hmm. how does that happen in that brain of yours, that great brain of yours? <laughs> well, I, I was interested in the human side behind yeah. it. So I'm, I mentioned that there was a mention in the yeah. doc, trial documentation that this might happen in the London trial. That what the, yeah, and their papers that you receive and you read them. Uh, well, in the case of the London trial, all those documents were made available. They're mm. not. They're not very uh, plain language, no. I have to say. <laughs> no. But uh, they were made. It was rare that that something like that would be made available. But th- in this case, because it was such a scandal, they mm. were made available, and um, so. I just had to wonder, well, what were those guys thinking? Mm. You know, their their colleagues are saying th- this, although it wasn't predictable, it was foreseeable. Uh, so what made them put that in the documentation, this warning that the effect, which is called a cytokine storm where the immune system melts down, might happen and they didn't give their own warning as much Mm. Uh, credibility, they didn't act on it in the way one would have hoped. So I thought it would be interesting to write a story from different perspectives uh, to give readers an idea of, well, what people might be thinking, the people who developed the drug, the people who were financing the drug. Because uh, all those relationships are so intertwined, aren't they? They are. And so really the, a novel is a fantastic format for that. Mm. And I wanted to read, reach readers who aren't going to read the investigator's brochure for that no. trial. <laughs> no. uh, they may not want to read a non-fiction book about it and the non-fiction book would have many gaps because people aren't going to, you know, the, the lawyers get involved, they're not going to be... Um, sharing their deep, dark secrets about these things. Um, so I thought a novel was the ideal form to develop a story set in that world to tell people about some of the issues and the themes in in those sort of circumstances. And I really love mysteries and thrillers. So it was a challenge and an exciting challenge to write a book like that. How long did it take you? So many people ask me that. Because <laughs> yeah. so uh, many people are aspiring writers. I'm not, but a lot of our listeners are. Okay. So 
I had the idea for it in 2008, which is a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really get serious about writing it for quite a while after that. So when I look at, when I kind of, kind of add up the time, I think it took me about three years. Mm -hmm. So in epidemiologist terms, you would say three person years. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Susan Hurley, you've done a great job. It's called Eight Lives. You're a wonderful writer. It's a page turner as well as, you know, I mean, what's so interesting about it for me anyway was that it's almost factual um, mm -hmm. but, you know, told in a way that is so compelling and so understandable and so readable. Um, it's a really good thriller. Uh, and I hear that rights have now been sold. Movie rights, is that right? Uh, rights for screen, so screen, TV yeah. or um, or movie. So the option to to make it into it, that has been and sold. And that's before yeah. its release. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks very much, Cheryl. It's been lovely talking with you. You too. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play, or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.